Welcome again, and thank you for those of you joining us online. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, today's message with uh, great anticipation. Sometimes when you preach, you have to preach at something, you go, oh, I need to say this, but I don't want to talk on this. Today, I want to talk on what we're talking on. I'm so excited about it that I've got to kind of take a breath and let it happen. Um, every now and then, over, over my time as a pastor, over my history as a human being, um, I've seen this occur. We go through some kind of natural disaster or some tragedy hits us. And, and, and you inevitably will have someone say, why would a good God let this kind of thing happen? And um, I don't hear that as much anymore as I used to hear as, it, as a younger person because, quite frankly, we're not very Christian anymore. And so that thought doesn't come up as much. But frequently what was meant by that um, comment was, here's a good excuse to reject God, because if he was good, he wouldn't let this kind of thing happen. So it becomes a, an excuse almost uh, to, uh, to or self-justifying to reject God. So I did what I frequently do when I want to find out something. I went blog hunting. And I know all you kind of do that too, right? Because you know, it's so reliable. And so I went blog hunting just to see what some had commented on when it comes to this idea of, of blaming God when bad things happen. And I happened upon one that was particularly interesting to me, and I want to share some thoughts from this one. Blaming God, and you can fill in the blank, uh, this author says, um, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned and God asked, what have you done? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And so what, what this blogger was saying was, it's in our DNA to blame others, to blame God when things go uh, uh, wrong. Um, Adam tried to blame God for his sin, and we've seen that go on since Adam uh, as part of uh, kind of the human experience. And we generally don't see any repercussions when someone blames God for, for something. We don't see the affront it is uh, to God's character. The truth is that most people who blame God for their misfortunes really don't know him, right? And if they do, they probably have a God of their own imagination that they've kind of made up, and, and therefore they are, uh, are, are justified in blaming him. And, and, and sometimes it, 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 the blame comes out of this profound hurt and devastation, and when we have profound hurt and devastation going on in our lives, we frequently don't think uh, all that well. Um, polls suggested that most people believe in God, small g, not capital G, not the God of the Bible. Uh, they believe that, uh, that, that he, he's really a God of their own making. You have to kind of drill down uh, with some to get to this point uh, of clarification um, that they really have a God that they've created in their mind. It's really not the living God. Um, oftentimes when people think of God, they think of this benevolent kind of benefactor, kind of a grandpa figure like me. Okay, first hour laughed a lot more. You're too young to get that. I have 13 grandkids. I don't do anything but love on those guys. And then they're problematic. I just turn them over to their parents, right? It's just a great gig at this point. Someone asked me, do you like being a grandpa better than a, than a dad? Yes. 
I do because I send the problems home with their parents. And I don't have to worry about them. I could just kind of love on them. And some people view God that way. It's so wrong. This benevolent grandfather, they kind of figure up there. They just, you know, he's there on demand and he'll show mercy and kindness. And, and the goodness is often defined by such a one as um, getting their circumstances met. So when life is fun, the party is rocking, right? Relationships are going well. Your job's going good. You're advancing in your career. This God that stays in the background because you don't need him. He's manageable by you. But then when some mishap happens, some trial comes your direction, then you want to throw up a prayer and say, come fix this. But it's a God of your own making. And this is more akin to rubbing a lamp on a, you know, expecting a genie God to come out and do what you want him to do. And sadly, I think for the majority of people, the God they think they know is a God of their own imagination and not the God uh, of the Bible who's been revealed to us. And um, today we're going to look into this understanding that God is so good that there's a goodness to God that I think is unfathomable by us. But you, you know, and, and, and I, I really have been struck personally by this concept for the last uh, probably half a year to a year that God is so good. And we so grossly underestimate his goodness. So we're to this third message of reframing God and reframing our experiences in life, I should say, through a biblical filter. Um, And we're in this series, Winning the War in Your Mind, and it's divided into four major sections. And each section has three messages associated with it. And so I'm on the last message uh, of this section uh, entitled The Reframe Principle. If you've been following along in the workbook or the text, you'll, you'll know where we're at today. And so far in this section, in this reframing section, uh, we looked at our lives um, through the filter of God. And when we do that, when we look past over our past life through the filter of God's word and filter of God's character, we become people who experience wisdom. We have an evaluated experience that produces wisdom that informs our present decisions and instills hope in us for what comes down the road in the future, right? So when you look in your past, looking at it through the filter of God, seeing that God has always been there and working in your life, you begin to become a wise person. See, unevaluated experience is that. It's just, just had a bunch of experiences. It does you no good. But when you evaluate your experience uh, through the wisdom of God, then you become a wise person, Amen. And it informs your present decisions and instills hope in the future. Then last week, we looked at this idea of reframing uh, our perspective, our life perspective, experiences in the sovereignty of God. God has a vantage point that we simply don't have. Amen, right? He has a uh, perspective and he has plans for us that we may not even understand. In fact, his plans may not even be our plans. And at times, what you simply have to do is trust the sovereignty of God. Trust that he's in control, that he knows your beginning from your end, and he knows more about you than you know about yourself. And even when things don't make sense at the moment, just hang in there, stay faithful to God, and trust that he has uh, good plans for you uh, down the road. Well, today we're going to look into the goodness of God. It's like the third message about this reframing your life. We're going to look into the goodness of God. And it, it, we have to move just beyond not blaming God for bad things when I talk about the goodness of God, but becoming fanatically aware about reframing our lives and our experiences in this context of the goodness of God. We have to become fanatically aware of doing that. And I don't know if very many of us do that. I know I have to really work at it. And, and it, when you start doing that, you'll begin to see things entirely differently. So here's our introductory thought today. A distinguishing attribute of God is his goodness. Is his goodness. 
And we see this really brought forth uh, in this exchange between Moses and God found in Exodus chapter 33. And Moses was called by God to lead his people Israel out of their bondage to Egypt. And man, along the way, Moses has such interesting interactions with God. And this is, is, is one of those. And basically, Moses is talking to the Lord here in Exodus 33. And, and I'm not going to read all this scripture, but he's saying, God, your presence has to go with us. Don't send us out if you're not going to go with us. Because what will distinguish us from anybody else if your presence isn't with us and, 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 and how they know that you know we're pleasing to you if you don't go before us and go into verse 17 uh, I'm going to just read it and the Lord said to Moses I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name then Moses said and I think this is one of the most audacious requests in all the Bible. I mean, I would never have had the courage to ask this. I, I don't even know if I would even had the courage, to, much less to have a conversation with God, much less to ask this kind of question. And Moses said, show me your glory. Saying to God, okay, show me your glory. And I'm going, whoa, Moses, that took a lot of courage. That's an audacious ask. And the Lord said, I will cause all my what? Say it goodness. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face. No one may see me and live. So when Moses asked to see God's glory, God said he would cause his goodness to go before him. Now, according to a commentary I read, this means God's whole character and his whole nature. God's saying, I'm going to show you my character and my nature. It's going to pass before you. My goodness is going to pass before you. And, and, and you're going to see me in this regard. Um, so let, let's drill down a little bit on what does goodness mean here. Goodness represents everything that God is. So God's goodness represents everything that he is. It's his basic nature and character. Everything that God has and everything that God desires for us to experience. So when we talk of God's goodness, it's basically saying, it's representing that everything that God is, everything that God has, and everything that God wants you and I to experience is summed up in this word goodness. Now, I know a lot of you are very linear. You like definitions. You like to know what words mean precisely, right? And you want to know the context sometimes. Uh, the older I get, the more I realize I just don't know a lot of things, and I'm okay with being that way. Are any of you there yet? You're pretty young. Some of you... Some, Got a hallelujah in the back. Yes. Anyway, listen to this. This is a definition of goodness for those of you that need this. It means to be pleasingly good. Virtuous, pleasant, beautiful, excellent, lovely, delightful, joyful, fruitful, precious, cheerful, kind, correct, and righteous. Does that help any? It's basically God's whole character. Goodness describes who God is. And this kind of uh, revelation that God is good is all over in the Bible. If you begin to read it differently, you see that God's goodness is constantly talked about in the Bible. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And what, what this rich young man was really asking was, what, you know, really, really distinguishing kind of act do I need to do that would qualify me for entering into the gates of eternity? It's entirely the wrong question, right? And Jesus doesn't even address that. He says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except for God. He wants this young man to know there's only one good thing, and that's God. 
God is good. Do you understand that? You, you can't do a good thing. You can't be good. It's basically what he would say. And not to leave the man without any instruction, Jesus says to him, well, go sell everything you have. Why? Why would he say that to this particular young man? Because that was his treasure. That was his hope. That was what he's putting his security in. That's what he was trusting in. And he's saying, get rid of what you trust in and follow me. Then you'll enter heaven because I'm good. I'm righteous, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so we see all over in the Bible this, uh, this, this revelation that God is good. And I really like the title that Craig Rochelle uses for this chapter that we're on right now. It's called Collateral Goodness. It's a great title. Amen? Okay, you're not as excited as I am. But I, I, I frequently, like any preacher, Aaron does this too, so it's not just me, we change titles because we think we know better. We'll look and say, oh, I can make a better title than that, the book, so I'm going to call it this instead. I looked at this one and I said, I can't come up with a better title. This is a really good title for the message today, Collateral Goodness of God. When you think collateral is often in regards to incidental damage, you know, Wikipedia, we all love that really trusted resource, right? Some of you aren't getting me today. Am I going too fast here? <laughs> Wikipedia. You know, I went there. It says, collateral damage is any death, injury, or other damage inflicted that is an incidental result of an activity. It's often used in the military to kind of signify in kind of a soft way that, well, we killed a bunch of people we ought not to have killed. They were collateral damage. No, they were human beings that lost their life. But what's this called collateral damage? That just sounds better. Amen? Some of you are going, where is this guy coming from today, right? But at any rate, it's it's used all over the place now in non-military contexts. Now hear this, beloved. Hear what I'm about to share with you. God's goodness is so great that many experience it collaterally, incidentally, in simple proximity by being a human being. They experience the goodness of God. I wonder if we ought not to ponder a very different question than the one I started with. You know, when people accuse God with this kind of questioning, why would a good God let bad things happen to people? My question would be more of this nature. Why do people who are so bad and so far from God and so self-serving and so stubborn and so sinful, why are they the recipients of so much good from God? Amen? Collaterally speaking, they live and they breathe and they enjoy life. You know what I mean? Why, why would God be that good is probably a better question uh, to ask. And so here's our reflection here. Many unknowingly experience the goodness of God just by proximity. I'm convinced that's an accurate statement. Do you understand God's goodness as being great like this? Where are you at today? Do you understand it that way? Does it overwhelm your soul at times? Do you just think, wow, God, you are so good. I can't even fathom it. What I wanted to do right now is have a moment of experience in the service. So I asked Kyle and Hope. Now that I know Hope, first hour I didn't know Hope was there. She surprised me. Um, and I asked them to lead us in a song that sings about the great goodness of God. And here's what I want you to do, Grace Point. Look at the words we're singing let them minister truth to your heart about the great goodness of God. Listen, I don't care if you're a Norwegian and you don't like to sing or not. Sing. All right? Sing. You can do it. If you don't want to sing, speak it. But somehow participate in what's going on here today and, and just let the truth of what we're about to sing penetrate into your hearts and change how you think about God's goodness. So would you go ahead and stand and we'll sing this out loud together.
Thank you, guys. 
Recently in our staff devotional, um, we sang that song. And Dave did the devotional that day and Ben led the music. And uh, as we were singing it, I just, it just so touched my heart. The truth of that song penetrated deep into where I'm at in my life right now. I, I, as we all do, I struggle at times with change and uncertainties in life. And um, I, I don't mind change. I kind of like change. I like a challenge. But there can be times in your life where it feels overwhelming, amen, where you're just going through so many changes and you're wondering what the future holds. And I'm in that kind of a situation uh, right now personally, trying to just, you know, grab a hold of God during this time and, 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 and cling tightly to him. And on the song sheet, we used to sing that day, Vicki wrote me a little note. She does that. She's a note writer. And I, I, I saw it days later as I was opening it up. And she said uh, this to me, that, and just I hope this ministers to you like it ministered to me. She said, every season of life is an opportunity to be a holy experiment. You know, if you've been around, you know I use that language a, a lot. New ways to see God's goodness running after us. New ways to grow in faith by seeing what God will do with a life uh, surrendered to him. I'm excited because God is good and God is faithful. And then on the lines where we, God has always been faithful, she wrote, do you believe that? And I looked at it and said, I do. I believe that with all my heart. God's always been faithful. Where are you at? Can you say that today? I love Psalm 3119. It says this, oh, how great is thy faithfulness, which thou hast laid upon them that fear thee which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. I just love that scripture. How great is God's faithfulness and how great is his goodness to those who fear him, right? And then if you go to Psalm 145, 9, it says, the Lord is good to all and it says his mercies are over all his works. I want to give you a different perspective today on God's goodness. It's so big and so permeating. Um, Goodness and good here in these two psalms imply the same thing. Pleasingly good, virtuous, pleasant, beautiful, excellent, lovely, delightful, joyful, faithful, precious, cheerful, kind, correct, and righteous. That's our God. He's good. His goodness is huge. Our big thought for the message today is this. God's goodness is so great and permeating, it could be characterized as collateral goodness. It could be characterized as collateral goodness. And so what I want to do today is, is do some reframing in our lives, using the goodness of God as our filter today for evaluation and understanding of our lives. So we're going to begin by just quickly talk about how do we reframe our past using the filter of God's goodness. First of all, thank God that he has given you what you needed, not what you wanted. Begin to have the habit of thanking God, looking at your past and say, God, you gave me what I needed, not necessarily what I wanted. And I see your sovereignty, and I see your goodness, and I rejoice in those, and I trust in those. Amen? You've given me what I needed more than what I wanted. Um, Greg Rochelle says this, when we reframe what happened in our yesterdays this way, it changes our todays. It changes how you look into your present situations. And secondly, and it's so important, purposely look for God's goodness in your past. Purposely look for God's goodness in your past. Now, I'm not talking about the sentimentalism or emotionalism or positive thinking. I'm talking about 
looking at God and declaring you are good and you're always good to me. And I'm not talking about minimizing trials either. Some of us have gone through some really tough things in our lives. I mean, think about poor Joseph. I talked about him last week. He went through some really hard things in his life. His brothers betray him, sell him into slavery, right, to some Ishmaelites. And then he experiences slander and false accusation by a household that ends up being the slave. And part of his household by his wife, he ends up being slandered and falsely accused of sexual advancement against her. And then he ends up in prison. And then in prison, a couple of, of, of Pharaoh's, uh, you know, guys end up there, servants end up there, and he interprets their dreams for them. And they don't, they don't remember him. He asks them, just remember me. And they forget him for two years. He went through tragedy. But when he looked in his past and he's talked to his brothers at the end of his father's days, when Jacob passed away, when he's talking to his brothers, he reframed everything in the goodness of God. He said, what you intended for harm, God has used for good, for the saving of many. See, he was meant to save his biological family, the Israelites, from starvation by a famine. He saw through all that stuff and saw the goodness of God working. How do you look at your past? Do you only see the bad things that happen to you? Do you just constantly count those? Then you're going to have a different perspective when you look into the future. Do you reframe your past in the goodness of God? Do you say, God, you were up to some good things, and I trust in your goodness? Now, when we begin this whole look into becoming the person God intends you to be this year, this becoming whole in God um, kind of big theme for the year 2023. Um, in that first series, um, we talked about this idea that we live in a fractured world. So therefore, individuals are fractured, ideologies are fractured, institutions are fractured. So guess what happens when you interact with such things? What happens to you? It's going to be some friction. You're going to have some fracturing happening in your life. You're gonna, brokenness begets brokenness. Is that what you're going to remember? Or are you going to remember all the good things that God's done for you? Are you going to focus on, on, on and look at life that way? I love a little uh, uh, revelation that Craig Rochelle makes about himself uh, in this particular chapter for this, this week. Um, he said this, I hate to admit this now, but for years I've complained to my wife, I don't have a life, I'd whine. Amy, I have to work every weekend while everyone else is out having fun. I have said those very words. Okay. And I even have to work holidays. Ditto. Everyone else is off on holidays. And I can't go out in public and play with the kids in the park because so many people know me from church. Vicky says, don't go to Walmart. We don't have time. I'll go. I love you guys. and I love talking. But, you know, it's a two-hour adventure to buy some toothpaste. You know what I mean? And so I understand what Craig is saying here. And I also have a big family. I really understand that too. My bathroom even doesn't have a door on it. I haven't gotten to the bathroom alone in years. I don't have a life. I grumbled. All I do is church and family, family and church, church and family, family and church. I just don't have a life. One day Amy looked at me. She now had new lenses in her glasses and said, sincerely, not sarcastically, I'm so sad for you. I thought, yeah, it is sad that I don't have a life. But she continued, I'm so sad for you because all I have is church and family. That's my life too. And I just love my life. Hmm. I read that and I go, huh. How do you choose to look at things? Do you look at them as a victim with cynicism? Or will you look at them through the goodness of God and this good gifts that he's given you? 
See, there's a goodness that God gives us collaterally just because we're a part of the human race. But what I really love is Psalm 3119 because it gives us a promise that those who fear God are going to experience the great goodness he has. It's not just goodness, the great goodness. See, this is the promise of really Psalm 3119. God promises great goodness for those who fear him. So my question is, do you fear God? Then expect his great goodness to be part of the package of your relationship with him experience that. Are you experiencing the great goodness of God right now? I'm asking you, are you experiencing that? When you look in the past, is that what you see? So now we're done with the past. Let's preframe your future in God's goodness. See, so you have to make a decision in life, and that's what I'm asking you to do, to frame whatever happens to you in the goodness context of God. That's who he is. That's how he's been revealed to us. See, you tend to see what you're searching for, right? You know that, right, as people? You tend to see what you're searching for. Make God's goodness your cognitive bias. I always laugh about this. You tend to see what you're searching for. <clears throat> I hesitated whether to share this, but I'll share it since I shared it first hour. So over the years, I have been the recipient of some letters as a pastor by people who sincerely are going to help me out and straighten me out, right? And what I've noticed consistently as a pattern, and I'm not just dismissing them, because sometimes there's some truth to some of them, is that they don't see life as it is. They see life as they see it. They don't understand me. They don't understand the context. And frequently, even in a church this large, we'll get some outside help. You know, that they're going to share what we're doing wrong. And frequently, the person has no idea. They're not even close. They don't even know who we are. And they're making all these assumptions. And they're seeing through what? Their bias filter. We do this a lot more than we recognize, friends. We don't see life as it is. We see it as we think it is. And what I'm telling you today is this. Make it a purposeful kind of exercise to see goodness that God wants you to see in him. Look at life through that filter. See, uh, make it a, a bias. I love Romans 8.28. Um, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Um, now, of course, in the context here of this, God uh, works for the good of all those who love him. You've got to understand that good here in this context means conformance to the image of Jesus Christ. If you read on in Romans 8, 28 to Romans 8, 29, it becomes abundantly clear. That's what's being talked about. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of the Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God works for good means conforming us to the likeness of the Son um, in all of the Son in all circumstances. So that's the goodness. If you don't define goodness this way, what will happen to you? You're going to define it some secular way, and you're going to be upset that things aren't working out the way you think they should work out. But God is using everything that happens in your life to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. you trust that? Do you believe in the goodness of God? That, I, I pray you do. I pray you do. So we need this goodness bias. God works all things for good, conformance to Christ for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I want to end the message by looking briefly to the account of Ruth because our workbook does that. In Winning the War in Your Mind workbook, it looks uh, to the uh, 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 book of Ruth and, and talks a little bit about uh, that story. We talked on this at great detail in 2022. So I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm going to go very quickly with an overview today. But we have two women here that experienced tragedy in their life, and it produced two distinctly different outlooks, two different ways of preframing uh, their future. And I just want you to see that here this morning. So in, in Ruth, the two main characters are Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, 
uh, the mother of a couple sons, and, and all the men in her family die when they move to Moab because of a famine. And then you have a, a second main character there, Ruth, the Moabitess, the daughter-in-law who sticks closer to Naomi than her own family probably would have, all right? So listen to this. They preframe their futures very differently. So let me read to you about Naomi, first of all, from Ruth chapter 1. But Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Because all the men are dead now in the family. You got the context, right? Am I, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant one. She told them, call me Mara meaning bitter one, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabiter, Don Allah, arriving in Bethlehem as the barber of the harvest was beginning. So we're looking at this example of, of Ruth and Naomi. Same trial, two outlooks. Naomi looked forward thinking God's hand was against her. She was a bit fatalistic, right? Now contrast her to Ruth. I'm going to contrast, contrast her to Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And going to Ruth's story here in Ruth chapter 1, she says this. Look, said Naomi to Ruth. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth looked forward, clinging to her identity in God. I think she was biased towards God's goodness. Naomi looked forward to the future, and, and her life trials had embittered her. Ruth looks forward and says, no, I have found God. And where you go, I'm going to go. Your people are going to be my people. So I don't blame, I don't blame Naomi's fatalistic bias. I mean, life had been tough to her. But you know what? I admire, I admire Ruth's hope bias for the future. So I don't blame Naomi for having a fatalistic bias. Life can do that to you sometimes. But what I do is I look at Ruth here and I say, wow, God, create in me a hope-filled bias for the future. That, this bias that, that looks at your goodness. Now, as the story of Ruth unfolds, it's only four chapters long, so it unfolds very quickly. Um, God moved behind, mightily on behalf of these two women, and uh, a near kinsman redeemer uh, named Boaz marries Ruth, and he's kind of like a prototype of Jesus Christ, Boaz, in the story. And the two have a son, and, and things end up really good. Listen to Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. Listen to this. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than seven sons has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here's the outcome. This is why I think Ruth, you know, she had this goodness bias of God. Listen to this outcome. Ruth and Naomi experienced the goodness of God. Ruth married Boaz and became part of the line of David and ultimately part of the line of Jesus Christ. One of the four women listed in the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew. If you read the book of Matthew, you see four women listed in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Ruth is one of them. 
He turned her ashes into beauty. She looked forward, I think, with this goodness bias towards God. You know, this is a reflection point I want to leave you with. You don't know what tomorrow may bring, but always lean into it with a filter of God's goodness. Amen? Amen. This is where I wanted to go with the whole message. You don't know what tomorrow might bring, but lean into it with a filter of God's goodness. See through God's goodness. That is his nature and character revealed to us. You know, Moses got to see that firsthand. Jesus Christ is that incarnate among us. It's God's goodness incarnate among us. Amen? Always lean into your future, no matter what, it, what you, you come to, with a filter of God's goodness. So now we're going to go into a, a time of communion. And so um, let me read to you this invitation. And um, now that I've found my book, listen to this. You who are walking in fellowship with God, are in love and harmony with your neighbor, who uh, do truly and earnestly repent of sin and intend to lead a new life following the commands of God, walking in his holy ways, draw near now in faith, take this holy sacrament to your comfort, and meekly make your humble confession uh, to Almighty God. I want to add to that invitation today some context here from, the, from our, our message. Listen to this. The standard invitation to communion I just read to you focuses on making sure your heart is prepared in the right kind of frame to take communion, which is appropriate. I want to expand the invitation today to include the invitations of the goodness of God because he is a good, good father. That's who he is. That's his nature. That's his character. His goodness runs after you. It doesn't just, it's not just out there. It runs after his people. Amen? Great is God's goodness towards those who fear him. So as you take communion today, choose to frame this sacrament, this sacred moment, in the context of God's goodness. So let's consecrate the bread and the juice unto the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Sovereign, almighty God, our heavenly Father, you in mercy have given us your son, Jesus. He suffered death upon the cross for our redemption. Accept our praise, we ask you. We thank you for your love, for the gift of your son, for the sacrifice he's made in our behalf, for the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of our hearts for the present witness of your Holy Spirit to our hearts that we are your child. Grant that as we receive this bread and juice in memory of Christ's death and suffering in communion with you and with your children, we may be made partakers in his blood and in his body. In your name, Jesus, amen.